Welcome to the East Memorial Student Podcast, your source for the biblical teaching of East Memorial Student Ministries. I'm your host, Matthew Ronsky, pastor of Students and Discipleship at East Memorial Baptist Church in Prattville, Alabama. Well, it is great to be back with you all and resuming this final home stretch of the relationship series. We have about another four weeks to go, including tonight. But I'm looking forward even to these final few weeks. But let me ask you a question. Who here has ever heard that opposites attract? Anyone ever heard that? What do you guys think? Do you think that's true? Say thumbs up if you think it's true, thumbs down if you think it's, if it's not true. I, I'm seeing a mixture of both that opposites attract. Okay, so I'm seeing a mixture of a bunch of different things. I actually do think it can be true to an extent that opposites can attract. And the reason is, if you think about it, romantic relationships, they go through phases as they begin and mature. And typically, in the beginning of a romantic relationship, there is a lot of excitement and physical attraction that drives the relationship, a lot of mystery and intrigue and getting to know the person. And the attraction builds, and if you are more of an adventurous person or a person that likes a challenge and you meet somebody that is completely different than you, hangs out with different friends, different interests, you might be very intrigued and interested in that kind of a person who's the complete opposite of you. So yeah, I do think to an extent, depending on, on you as a person, who you are, opposites may attract. However, the real question It's not whether opposites attract, but whether opposites stick. That's the real question, right? That's maybe even the more important question. And what I would say to this is that eventually a romantic relationship progresses from the new, the mysterious, the exciting phase of its its beginning into more of a steady phase. And all relationships will progress. And what that means is that the emotions and the butterflies, so those heightened, really intense emotions, the butterflies, those will start to dissipate and go away a little bit. You'll become more familiar and comfortable with the other person, which means, for example, that you're less driven to put on your best front as as you get to know that person. And for some of us, we can't even put on a good front at the beginning of a relationship. So we're in real trouble at this point, uh, and ask Carissa, I did not put on a very good front, but as I've mentioned in the past, by the grace of God, for reasons I don't know, she stuck with me, okay? But, but you're less driven to put on your best front. You're more likely to share with the other person your true thoughts and feelings about a variety of things, including what you're upset about or what you don't like, and this leads to the potential of conflict. Also, as a relationship matures and gets into the steady phase, the time you spend together will center less on pre-planned and exciting dates and more on the routine activities of life. So for example, you'll start to do routine errands together, like going to Target or going to the store, right? Not very exciting things. Uh, family, friendships, and personal hobbies slash interests will become more of a feature of the relationship, and what this means is that you'll start spending more time around each other's friends and family. 
You'll both want to share more of your interests and hobbies with the other person. And, uh, and so these are some of the things that will occur as a relationship matures and, and steadies. Now, the, ra- the rate at which relationships mature is going to vary from relationship to relationship. Some relationships, depending on the people, they may stay in a certain phase longer than, than others. But by the time you get into marriage, especially if you've been married for a few years, you will be in that steady phase of your relationship. No, no questions about it. In fact, talk to any married couple just to test this and ask them what their average text messages look like to each other. All right, it's, it's all just about like, hey, when are you going to be home? Um, hey, can you stop by a store and get this? You know, well, just, just basic logistic, nothing that exciting. Sometimes it might be exciting, but most of the time it is not very exciting. And it's just marriage becomes everyday life with the person you're married with. So what you need to understand about marriage, this is the big point that I want to make at this, at this stage, The strength of a marriage and the intimacy within marriage is not driven by mystery, intrigue, raw attraction, the things that characterize the early stages of a relationship. In marriage, intimacy grows and the relationship is strengthened through spending time together, sharing life experiences together that includes the good experiences and the bad experiences It involves um, raising your children together as a team and sharing those experiences as you're watching your children grow, also by sacrificially loving each other. All of these things together is what builds intimacy and closeness within a marriage. Now, I do want to say that there is no married couple that does these things perfectly. There's no married couple out there that is perfect perfect because everyone is sinful, but this is the blueprint for a healthy and intimate marriage. It's a general blueprint. And what does that mean for this idea of opposites attracting and sticking? Here's what I would say, and this is a strong statement, but I would say it. If two people are different enough that they share little in terms of interest and passions, if they're unwilling or become unwilling to hang out with each other's friends, if they have different priorities in life, if they have different perspectives on parenting, if they have different ideas about what love looks like, if all of these things are different between two people, then over time, in that kind of relationship, happiness and intimacy are going to be not very likely in the long term. And if you give it, and I would even maybe go as far as to say that For differences this major, closeness and intimacy in the long term is impossible. There will be major conflict and difficulty. So if you want a happy and intimate marriage that leads to a lot of blessing in your life, then perhaps the critical feature at this point that you would need to have is what would be or what you would need to be as a couple is what can be called equally yoked. Has anyone ever heard that term, being equally yoked? Let me see a show of hands. So a few? Okay. So equally yoked. What does it mean to be equally yoked in the biblical sense? That's what we're going to answer next. 
And to illustrate this concept of being equally yoked, I want to take you to some laws in the book of Deuteronomy. So the book of Deuteronomy, and we're going to be in chapter 22. And we're going to look at verses 9 to 11. So Deuteronomy 22, verses 9 to 11. And I'm going to read these laws to you, and then we'll, we'll discuss them. Okay, so starting in verse 9, it says, You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, or all the produce of the seed which you have sown, and the increase of the vineyard will become defiled. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear material mixed of wool and linen together. All right, so here's the three laws that, that we're going to cover. And if you're like a lot of people, you might be thinking, what is the point of these laws? In fact, laws like these in the Old Testament often serve as a point of mockery for Christians or any Bible believers. People will point to laws like these and be like, oh, really? You know, you, think, you, know, you, you want to obey the law? Okay, well, do you... Do you, you know, do this? Do you wear, you know, wool and linen together, right? So, so the, these laws at, at their surface might lead us to that question. What is the point? Well, here I'm going to give you the, 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 the pro insight, so to speak, okay? Talk a little bit about these laws. And here is the professional insight when it comes to the Old Testament, Testament law. Individual laws like these like the ones we just read, they, especially here in Deuteronomy, they are connected to one of the Ten Commandments. So if you think of it, one of the Ten Commandments is a governing law that all of some of these individual laws fit under. And what these laws do in their purpose is to teach us more about the commandment that they are connected to. And usually the way that they'll do this is they'll, they'll teach us more about the Ten Commandments by illustrating a principle related to that commandment or by giving a specific application of the commandment. And as we study these individual laws and what they mean in their application, we learn more about the ten, one of the Ten Commandments that they're connected to. So to say all this in another way, laws like the ones we just read teach us what it means to fulfill the Ten Commandments, and it also teaches us what fulfilling the Ten Commandments does not mean. So it gives us more understanding. So regarding the commandments we just read, here's a trivia question for you guys. What ten, which one of the Ten Commandments do you think that these laws are connected to? And if you get this right, I won't have Carissa make you some dessert so she can breathe, but maybe I'll give you a high five or something like that. So can anyone guess which of the Ten Commandments these laws are connected to? I guess you got a one out of ten shot to get it. Okay, we'll read it again, okay? You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, or all the produce of the seeds which you have sown and the increase of the vineyard will become defiled. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together, you shall not wear a material mixed of wool and linen together. Which, com which Ten Commandments do you think it's connected to? Robin. Yes, it is, it is that. Robin, let me get... There, there we go. Great job. That is, it is right. This command, 
These commands, these laws, are connected to the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. In fact, from Deuteronomy 22, verse 9, all the way to Deuteronomy 23, 14, all of the laws within that section of Deuteronomy are connected to the command, thou shalt not commit adultery, based on the structure of the book of Deuteronomy. And when you study these laws, not only the ones we just read, but all the laws in that section, what you learn about when it comes to the commandment against adultery is that the command against adultery is about more than not cheating on your spouse. There's more to it than that. What you learn is that the commandment against adultery is also about, at its core, at its foundation, maintaining relational and bodily purity. That's what the law ultimately speaks to. And by purity, we're talking about something that is unspoiled or uncontaminated. Pure gold is gold that has no other element or contamination in it. It's pure 100% gold. That's what we mean by purity. And really, this even goes back to God. You see, our God is a holy God. He's holy and he demands purity and cleanliness, which is related to it, because he is a pure God, uncontaminated by anything that would spoil or diminish his glory and his holiness. And so when it comes to something like marriage, which is the the pinnacle of, of human relationships on this planet, when it comes to marriage, God's original design for marriage is that he designed and intended for a man and a woman to become one with each other in a pure physical and spiritual bond. A pure physical and spiritual bond is the original design for marriage. And that bond between a husband and wife is so critical to God's design for marriage that he demands purity for the marriage relationship. And this includes purity going into the marriage relationship and purity being maintained in the marriage relationship. So with that in mind and the commands that we just reread, and I'll just summarize, right? Don't sow multiple seeds together with your vineyard. Don't plow the field with an oxen and a donkey and don't wear linen and wool together. So with those commands fresh in our mind, the question we can now ask is, how do these commands, these specific commands, relate to this principle of purity and cleanliness or really uncontamination when it comes to the marriage relationship? What do these laws teach us about purity in a marriage relationship? Well, here is the answer that I would give you. The aspect of relational purity that these three laws speak to that we just read, the, the aspect that they speak to is, and well, here's, we could say the principle of these laws, that the principle that these laws speak to is that there are some things in this world that cannot mix without causing problems and harm without causing a form of contamination. And to give you an example of that, okay, if we go back to verse 9, 
This idea of not sowing your vineyard with two kinds of seeds. Well, there are some plants. I'm not a farmer, okay, so I'm just basing this off of what I could, I could research online. But there are types of plants that cannot be planted next to each other without damaging one or both of the plants. And that could be because they'll either compete for important nutrients in the soil or even the water in the soil, or their harvest time may be different. And so if you plant them together and you try to harvest one, you may damage the other. So there are some plants you can't plant together without damaging one or both. Going on to plowing with an ox or a donkey, well, this one kind of speaks to itself. A donkey and an ox do not have the same size, strength, or endurance. So if you connect both of them together under a yoke and, and try to plow the field with them side by side, you're going to have some problems with those animals. They're not going to be happy campers if they have to plow side by side. Going to the next one on you shall not wear material mixed of wool and linen, now, I'm not a tailor or a seamstress or anything like that, but what I could find is that wool and linen as fabrics have completely different properties in terms of how they, re how they retain moisture, how they shrink under heat. And so if you, if you make a, a piece of clothing with both linen and wool fabric mixed together, then as soon as you try to wash that piece of clothing, you're going to have a ruined piece of clothing. They just don't mix. And so these laws, these three laws, they serve as a practical illustration of this principle, that some things in this world do not mix without causing damage or harm. So how then does this principle apply to human relationships, especially the marriage relationship? Well, here's the answer to that question. And I would say that there are different types of people that can never join together in a marriage relationship without harmful or contaminating influence on one or both partners. So to say that again, how these laws apply to marriage is that there are people that just don't mix. They just don't mix unless you want problems and contamination in that marriage. And according to Scripture, the influence that God is most concerned about is spiritual influence. Spiritual compatibility, spiritual contamination is what God cares about the most. And this is true because what a person believes spiritually, what they believe about God what they believe about themselves, what they believe about the purpose and meaning of life, and all of these things are connected to a person's spiritual beliefs. All of these things will influence practically every area of that person's life. It will influence career decisions. It will influence how they parent their children, how they spend their money, how they spend their time, whether or not they go to church, and then if they do go to church, what church they want to go to, and it will influence even how they believe they should love their spouse and what that means to them. So a person's spiritual condition is the most influential thing in a relationship. And I want to read to you now a few passages that demonstrate the importance of spiritual unity 
in a relationship between a guy and a girl. And the first, we'll stay in Deuteronomy. We'll go to Deuteronomy 7. And I'm going to read uh, to you verses 1 to 6. So Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 to 6. And we'll have two more passages after this. But it reads, When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you, and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For, and here's the reason, they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their ashram and burn their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. All right, next passage we're going to read is from 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I'm going to read verses 15 to 20. So 1 Corinthians 6, 15 to 20. And here God through the Apostle Paul begins in verse 15. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. And then the last passage here is 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, I'm going to read verses 14 to 18. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14 reads, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Which is another word for Satan. Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So when we read these passages together, these three passages, what we see very clearly is that when it comes to God's children, and that is people who are pursuing God and pursuing His holiness, 
people who, are, who have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them, when it comes to those people, the children of God, it is never acceptable for them to spiritually unite with the children of the devil. And those are people who are serving idols of their own making and pursuing their own pleasures, who are not living for God as their Lord and Master. And whether they know it or not, such people who are pursuing their own desires, worshiping their own idols, whether that's a career or a false religion or whatever it may be, those people, whether they know it or not, they are by nature children of the devil. And a true biblical Christian must never spiritually unite with such people. And make no mistake about it, in marriage, you are spiritually uniting with your spouse. We could even say this, that based on this purity principle from God's law that we've discussed tonight, that if you were to marry an unbeliever as a Christian, and you know that they're an unbeliever, even if you maintain physical purity before the marriage, if you are knowingly marrying an unbeliever, then you are still violating the purity principle that God's law would teach because you are uniting with a spiritually impure person. So even if you maintain physical purity, unite, you, you, if you unite with a spiritually impure person, you are still violating that purity principle from God's law. Now, this leads to a question that we must answer, or really a series of questions, and, and that is this. What about Christians who find themselves married to an unbeliever? Because that is very common. That is very, very common for, for if you were to look at any church, there are going to be plenty of people within that church that are married to non-Christians. What about them? Is that marriage invalid? Should they divorce that person? How do we reconcile everything that we've talked about with those situations? Well, to answer this, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to read a few verses from 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 to 16, and we'll get the answer to this question and talk a little bit more about it. So 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 12, here the Lord through Paul says, but to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified or purified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified or purified through her believing husband. Or otherwise your children are unclean, but now... They are holy. Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, what Paul is saying here is just because a Christian may find themselves married to an unbeliever does not mean that they should now automatically divorce their spouse. And the reason that Paul gives could be summarized like this. I'll, I'll give you a summary as far as the reason. As a believer, the power of the Holy Spirit within you is stronger 
than the power of sin in an unbeliever. The power of sin within your unbelieving spouse. So if you are married to an unbeliever, it is true that you as the believer will have a positive spiritual influence on your unbelieving spouse and your children as well. You may even be the instrument that God uses to save your unbelieving spouse. And so based on that truth, if you're a Christian that finds yourself married to an unbeliever, then you should not divorce them if they want to stay married to you. Now, I do want to make a qualification, though, that what is said here is really, I would argue, meant to be an encouragement to believers who are already married to an unbeliever, meaning believers who were saved after they were married, so they they married as unbelievers, but now one is saved and the other is not, or believers who marry somebody thinking that they're a believer and then finding out several years down the line that actually they're not and they completely renounce God. That I would argue that is the people that Paul is primarily speaking to and attempting to encourage. This passage, I would argue, cannot be used by a believer to justify marrying a person who they know is not a believer. You can't, if let's say you're attracted to an unbeliever, you can't use this passage to say, well, if I marry them, maybe I can be a positive influence. Maybe I can lead them to the Lord. If you know that they're not an unbeliever, then everything else we have talked about is the principle by which you should live. And there's several reasons for this. One, you don't know for sure that your influence will actually lead to their salvation. There's no guarantee. Even Paul's not promising that here. He's saying, how do you know? But he's not saying it will happen. So if you, if you disregard this and, mar- and knowingly marry an unbeliever, it may mean that you will be forever married to that unbeliever and they'll never come to have the same faith in God as you. Also, we could say that if you willingly disobey God's word by knowingly marrying such a person, how do you not know that instead of God using you as a blessing, God may use that unbelieving spouse as an instrument of discipline upon you? You can't know that for certain. So you don't want to test the Lord when it comes to this. Another thing to think, keep in mind is that even if you do have a positive spiritual influence on the other person, In such marriages, conflict and difficulty in that marriage will still be unavoidable. And that's because if you're a believer and they're an unbeliever, there is going to be a big difference in priorities, in interests, in desires. So even if you are that positive influence, you are still looking at a marriage with a lot of conflict and difficulty. And then third, another thing to think about is even though you may have a positive influence, spiritual influence on your unbelieving spouse, It is also true that your unbelieving spouse will have some influence on you. Now, if you are a true believer, that doesn't mean that their influence will destroy your faith, but it can mean that their influence will stunt your spiritual growth or limit spiritual opportunities. For example, there are men who would love to be pastors, but because of the person they married, could never fulfill that role as God would want them to fulfill. There's just that limitation. Or to give you another illustration, and I'll just, I'll just use 
myself as an example. So as a believer, as a Bible-believing Christian, I believe, I have the conviction that for my wife to be spiritually encouraged and to grow spiritually, she needs, she needs more than just me as her husband. In other words, she needs other women, godly women in the church to be an encouragement, to be friends to her, to, to, to be involved in her life, right? So I, I believe that from Scripture. We've even talked about that with the Titus 2 principle with older women encouraging the younger women. So my wife needs, I believe, the influence of other women. So how does that then play, relate to this? Well, as a believing husband with that conviction, when a women's event comes up or an opportunity for Carissa to spend time with other Christian women and some of her friends. As the husband, I'm going to be willing to sacrifice in order to facilitate that relationship. Means, yes, I will watch the kids so you can go spend a few hours with your friends. Or I will do this or I will pay for this in order for you to have that benefit, that spiritual benefit. Now imagine that I'm not a believer, that I don't have that conviction, that I'm selfish and that I want my wife to myself to fulfill my needs. Now my wife wants to go hang out with some of her Christian friends, some of these fellow godly ladies, but now I give her a hard time. Really? No, no, I need you home. And maybe even start a conflict over that. That's just an illustration of how this can play out in the real world, being married and being to an unequally yoked person. All right? So and there's a lot more that we could talk about that and illustrate, but the bottom line is this. If you are a Christian and if you desire to have a blessed and happy marriage that will help you grow into your maximum spiritual potential, then you must never knowingly enter a romantic relationship with an unbeliever. That is the bottom line. Now, as we come to our conclusion, I do want to address a challenge that faces you all, especially in light of everything that I've said. And the challenge I want to address as we come to the end is this, that especially considering the fact that you live in the American South, where Christianity is a big part of the culture. And so here's the challenge. The challenge that faces you all is that sometimes it will be difficult for you to tell the difference between someone who claims to be a Christian and somebody who is actually a Christian, right? So I assume at this point that you know if somebody is a God denier and God hater, and that's as clear as day, I'm hoping that it's at least clear, okay, you know not to enter that relationship. But what about the people that claim Christianity but who may not be Christians? And if you've heard Brother Glenn's preaching before, then you know that he often preaches on the fact that not everybody who claims to be a Christian is actually a Christian. So how do you handle this issue? How, how, what, what tools, what, what things can you be considering to help you navigate this issue? And to think about this, just to emphasize the, the significance of this, even if you meet somebody who not only claims to be Christian, but who is serious about their faith, they really are serious about their faith, there's the added difficulty that not all Christians share the same beliefs. And if you know anything about different denominations and different churches, 
that, that becomes evident, that there are some major differences even within, quote-unquote, Christianity between different denominations and different churches. So that's even another issue that, that makes this challenge that much greater. So to help you with this issue, I want to close tonight by giving you four major theological issues that divide Christian churches and denominations, that really divide Christians. So four major issues. And I'm not going to tell you what you should believe about these issues because we don't have time to do that. But I will say that you should begin, these issues that we're going to cover, you should begin to at least figure out what you believe about these issues or what you think you believe about these issues. And you should talk about these issues with your potential spouse or a potential spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend. You must talk about these issues. And the reason is because if there's major disagreement on these issues, if you and your partner, this future spouse or potential spouse, if they do share major differences in these areas, then I would argue and, and say to you that it will lead to significant spiritual tension in your marriage. So, okay, what are the four issues? Four issues. One, the role of women in church leadership. The role of women in church leadership. There are churches and denominations who believe that women can serve as, pastor, as pastors or ministry leaders over men, and there are churches who do not believe that and do not hold that. And this is a major issue, major issue. Even some Southern Baptist churches, if you look at different Southern Baptist churches, there will be a difference in this issue. And you can find Southern Baptist churches that have women who are listed as ministers, executive ministers, ministers of pastoral care, whatever the list may be, the title may be, you can even find that difference among Southern Baptist churches. So that's one, the role of women in church leadership. Number two, the practice of miraculous gifts. And by miraculous gifts, I'm talking about the spirit-empowered spirit gifts like speaking in tongues, healing, prophecy, what you actually believe about those issues and how, they, and how they're practiced in the church, if they're practiced in the church. This is another major issue that divides Christians. Another one to put out there is the baptism, baptism of infants. This, will, this is a big issue as well that can determine how children are raised in the faith. And number four, this is kind of even a, maybe even a catch-all with some of these things, but the authority of church tradition. And what I mean about this issue is there are some churches and denominations that believe that church tradition has just as much or more authority than the Bible. And there are churches that believe the Bible is the only authority, that all church tradition has to be submitted to the Bible and examined against the Bible. There are these, these differences. So these are just some of the major issues. There are probably others, but these are four of the big ones that divide professing Christians. And my encouragement to you is not only to start asking yourself what you believe about these issues yourself, but also if you are in a dating relationship or if you find yourself in a dating relationship, I would encourage you to talk about these issues with the other person. And I would encourage that you have these conversations sooner rather than later, before you start to get 
too invested and emotionally tied to the relationship, if there are, especially if there are these big issues. So let me end with a final statement that I think summarizes everything that we've talked about tonight. And I want to leave you with this. And that is, as you are evaluating any potential romantic relationship, you must prioritize purity in that relationship. Yes, that includes physical purity, which we'll address probably next week a little bit, but also it includes spiritual purity, spiritual purity in the ways that we've talked about tonight. You want to marry somebody with whom you will be able to share perfect, uncontaminated unity. You want to marry such a person. And if you do marry such a person, then it will be possible to experience a truly intimate and blessed marriage. That's what I want to leave with you guys tonight. So let's pray, and then we'll get into our, our, um, our Wednesday after church. All right. Lord God, we are so thankful for your word. And uh, Lord, even thankful for the laws that we went over uh, tonight that to us at, at first, Lord, seem so trivial, that seem maybe even pointless. Why are these laws in your Bible? But Lord, as we dig into your word deeper and as we study your word deeper, we see that every aspect of your word, Lord, every aspect of your law, although we may not be under your law like the nation of Israel was, although we don't have that duty and obligation, that we can still learn from your law, Lord, and learn about your truth and about your nature. And so, Lord, I just pray for all of us here that the truths that we talked about tonight, that you would help us apply those truths to our life, our life, Lord, that you would help us believe in those truths if we're struggling with unbelief, and, Lord, that you would guide us, all of us, into spiritual relationships that will bless us, Lord, and encourage us in our faith. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the East Memorial Student Podcast. For more information and updates about East Memorial Student Ministries, please visit our website at eastmemorial.org. You can also follow us on our Instagram page titled EMBC Student.